Welcome to episode number 208 of CXO Talk. CXO Talk brings together the most interesting, innovative executives, business leaders in the world talking about leadership, technology, disruption. I'm Michael Krigsman, industry analyst and host of CXO Talk. And you know, I have a great job doing this, talking with these amazing folks. And today we are speaking with Anurag Harsh, who is the senior vice president and founding executive of Ziff Davis. And that hardly touches, scratches the surface on the things that he has done. He is he has a music video that a performance from Carnegie Hall that is one of the most viewed, literally one of the most viewed music videos online any place with millions and millions of views. He's written two books. He's one of the top LinkedIn technology bloggers. So really an extraordinary person. Anurag Harsh, how are you? And thanks for joining us today. Hi, Michael. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Excited to uh, share my thoughts. And you were, you were even a, uh, a radio announcer for the BBC earlier in your career. Yeah, that was, you know, that was in a past life. Um, I was a newsreader and a broadcast journalist. I produced a program called Science and Development for the BBC World Service um, when I was actually in college in University of Sheffield in England. And I was take the four hour bus down to London and then broadcast uh, a six hour shift. Um, and it was fascinating. And I did that for many years. Well, you've done you've done amazing things. So, so tell us about Ziff Davis and tell us what about your role. What do you what do you do? Sure. <laughs> well, Ziff is uh, Ziff Davis is one of the world's largest uh, digital media companies. Uh, we operate properties in the technology, gaming, entertainment, health, and men's lifestyle verticals with um, iconic brands such as PC Mag, IGN. Everyday Health, What to Expect, MedPace Today, Askman, and Speed Test. The Wall Street Journal um, describes us as, and I quote, the epitome of modern innovative digital publishing. Uh, each month, our Ziff sites reach a third of U.S. internet audiences and 110 million worldwide consumers in over 100 countries, over 50 international editions, and over 24 languages. I joined Ziff uh, about seven years ago now. It's almost seven years. And as its first and founding hire uh, and the first executive when our CEO, Vivek Shah, took over the company, uh, being involved with its complete digital transformation all the way from when it was a, you know, a small privately held media company to now when it's a thriving nearly $4 billion market cap. It's an all public digital enterprise with 1400 plus employees. We're part of J2 Global and we're traded under the stock symbol JCOM with JCOM. I've been involved in all aspects of the company, including internal and external facing web, mobile social assets, you know, focus on harmonizing efforts across all sales channels, social media, internet, intranet. We've done, over uh, 20 M&A transactions. Uh, I've been involved in strategy and partnerships and new business ventures, sales, marketing, revenue generation, international expansions. Really, you know, all the way from the beginning to where the company is right now from sort of technically employee number one to 
I, you know, we're, we might be 1600 people. I don't know, but I the official number is 1400 employees. So, and you, you, you've written a couple of books and your most recent book is, and I'll hold this up. You can see your most recent book is going digital, which is all about digital transformation. It's a really good book. And please uh, share with us some of the, the key points. Why did you write the book? And what are, what are some of the, the key themes? Well, um, look, uh, we live in a crucial period in time. Uh, the rate of technological innovation has, you know, outpaced our ability to see into the future with a reliable degree of accuracy. Yes, we're able to, you know, cope with the vagaries of the world, yet no one can precisely say where we're going to be five or 10 years from now. The 21st century and its people are marked by great change, staggering accomplishment, and unprecedented uncertainty, right? So for all this, we've managed to change the course of humanity in ways our ancestors never dreamed. We've prolonged human life well beyond what was typical. We've engineered machinery and digital technology that reduce the need for human involvement, putting more time and energy you know, at our disposal to pursue happiness inside and outside of our workroom. We've deconstructed command and control corporate hierarchy and created this concept that we now know as work-life balance. Um, an antidote to the pernicious absorption customary of the workplace. So, you know, perhaps in equal measure, we've opened gaping divides of global proportions. You know, this is a natural fluctuation of human affairs. Um, I don't think that there's ever been, and maybe there'll never be a perfect society. You know, we're flawed in all too human ways. And yet in all those very flaws, when looked at dispassionately and honestly, that can reveal the doorways to a better world for us all. So, when you think about it, in the last 15 or 16 years, more than a half of all the Fortune 500 companies have either become insolvent, been acquired by another company, or stopped doing business altogether. And if you just look at last year, 50% of the Fortune 500 companies declared a loss. So the stride of transformation has become a revolution. Rivalries have deepened and business models have been dislocated. So the only constant is the growing severity of digital disruption. That's why I wrote this book, you know, aggregated many years of experience on the subject of digital and digitalization and digitization and transformation at the corporate, individual and global level. So the topic of digitalization, it's, it's an incomplete one. To speak on the effects of digitalization will inevitably leave questions answered uh, and perspectives unrecognized. So what I did in the book um, that you've been so kind to, uh, to show to the audiences here is to cover these topics from as many perspectives as possible as they relate to the subjects of business economics and very important psychology. My goal with the book was to present the reader with a comprehensive understanding of the, the myriad ways that digital technology and the mentality it's engendered has changed the course of human history changed the way that people view each other and has affected business practices. Um, and, you know, I provided practical measures for people and business owners alike to create a, a culture of innovation that acknowledges 
individual differences and then seeks to harness them while contextualizing the culture in a broader discourse about the government's role in digital divides that we see opening between you know the peoples today so when you look over the table of contents of this book and it's you know it's there on amazon you can decide you know where you want to start based on your interests you don't have to read it cover to cover you know after all customizability is the hallmark of digitalization so when a company or a person um, has truly crafted a digital journey it matters not where on the path you enter you will always see uh, repeated endlessly every element of the journey. And that really is the guiding spirit of what I think is the next frontier of digital thinking. And that's what the book is all about. Anurag, you raised, uh, you mentioned two things that I find particularly intriguing. Number one is you spoke about, quote, the growing, uh, growing severity of digital transformation. And then you talk about the psychological dimension of this. And I find that fascinating because as I have as I have spoken with many leaders on this show, the issue of culture is a very maybe maybe the strongest common denominator when people are talking about digital transformation. And so when you talk about psychology, maybe you can uh, would you elaborate on that for us please? Well, culture is very important. Look, um, there's two aspects of culture when it comes to digital. It's the mindset and the method. And let me let me qualify that a little bit. You know, um, as I was writing my book, reflecting on my years, uh, digitally transforming some of the companies I've worked for, including Ziff, a peculiar allegory occurred to me. And some of you may know it. I'm not a Buddhist, but... I'm intrigued by world religions, um, and uh, in Buddhism, there is this belief that all of reality is as one. Everything is anything and nothing. Uh, Buddhist philosophers will sometimes illustrate this point with the allegory of what they call as Indra's net. You know, as it goes, the universe is a net held together by radiant bejeweled knots. So just, just follow my thought here. It's, it's kind of interesting, and I, I think there's a learning from this. Um, the universe is a net, um, which is held together by, by radiant bejeweled knots. At each knot in Indra's net, there is a multifaceted reflective gem. You pick any jewel in the net, and then you stare into it, and what you will see is a reflection of all the other jewels in the net. You would see the universe over and over again. It's sort of like a mirror. So the edicts of digital transformation are not unlike Indra's net. The prevailing notion is that no matter where in the business or in the supply chain you look, you know, you should be able to glean everything about the digital journey, the digital journey being the aggregate of the operational and the strategic elements in, in your digital process. So, uh, that includes your architecture, infrastructure, your management technology, your logistics, your planning, your governance, and, and, and everything else. So the jewels in our net are data. And the rope is all the technology we use to connect. So, you know, at this moment, data is all about information. It's the blueprint of the physical world, the interactivities and the lines and causality. So, you know, that's the culture we're trying to create, which is the culture that unifies, unifies technologically as well as um, 
from a mindset perspective, everything in the network of this invariable communication, you know, that can automate, interpret, predict, store, self-adjust, increase the agility, increase innovation, and foster collaboration from end to end, right? So to go back to the allegory of Indra's net, when a company is fully digital, and the culture is fully digital, every element is networked such that a single glimpse at one portion reveals the whole. So at an abstract level, it's relatively simple to understand, but in practice, it's a very different story. And we've tried to do that a little bit at SIF here. And so, you know, many digital transformation experts I've, 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 I've spoken to, it's, it's, it, it, they leave a lot to be desired. You know, they, they, they don't provide concrete implementable solutions from, so, so for me, you know, div, digital transformation is, is really about getting all of those pieces together from a culture perspective to get the employees and the customers who are really the building blocks of your digital strategies. So, so the, uh, so the culture and the psychological dimension of connecting all the pieces of the company together through data, through shared experience, on one level, it's easy to talk about, but as you said, very difficult to do in practice. And so what are some of the practical steps that an organization can take in order to execute a program or initiative of digital transformation? Well, that's a fantastic question. And uh, let me try to think about this a little bit. Look, um, companies are spending a lot of money. And why? Because, you know, because of disruption, there's despondency. And that's compelling companies to launch these digital initiatives. And they're investing a lot of money, which mostly results in disappointment due to the absence of concrete components or strategy, right? As the markets are shifting downward, many companies have tried to counter this spiral by initiating these frantic investments in digital initiatives. Um, some of them are hiring chief digital officers and um, you know, some of them are looking at their CIOs and their CMOs to counter some of these uh, disruptive effects. Um, from my perspective, there are five things, strategically speaking, at the very high level um, that companies need to think about. And, and let, me, let me tell you what they are, uh, that these buzzwords I've created, um, but we've sort of followed them a little bit here at Ziff, and we seem to be uh, hitting some success with it. The first one is called the structural swivel. The second one is the inverse acquisition. The third is the offshoot, and I'll explain what these are. The fourth is um, the coattail rider. And the fifth is oiling the hinges. So let me start with the first one, the structural swivel. So when you think about it, the role of speed is crucial for this digital disruption, right? Um, and companies have these legacies. So you talk to any CTO or CIO, there's like, oh, you know, I have all these legacy systems and these techniques that can impede my ability to execute. So by altering the company's configuration to spotlight, you know, digital initiatives, you know, executives can swiftly escalate the speed of transformation. So that's a tactic that necessitates earmarking funds and human resources to digital initiatives and placing digital executives in 
command and of existing business processes. I'll give you an example. Um, I can't give you specific names for confidentiality reasons, but a lot of these over the course of writing my book and you know some of our clients, this is a bank. It's a local bank that started to you know actively swivel. Um, remember, this is this is the structural swivel. That's what we're talking about here. It swiveled out of conventional high street branch driven model by venturing outside and recruiting a CDO, a chief digital officer. In fact, the bank uh, empowered this guy with complete corporate supervision, you know, comprising all the high street branches that were still the lion's share of the bank's income. All product, tech, sales outlets, and marketing units uh, started reporting to the new CDO. To additionally push for digital transformation, each regional division also hired a committed CDO at the same level as the local bank president. These changes were then intended to assist the bank in, you know, obviously speeding and hastening its conversion to a soup-to-nuts digital enterprise and in organizing a pure digital experience across all the business conduits, which echoes ever-changing consumer and market developments. That's what I call, you know, a structural swivel. Um, The second is a component of digital transformation is what I call the inverse acquisition. When you think about it strategically, strategically, if you're not in the right place, tactically, you can't implement it. What is the inverse acquisition? Well, there are a lot of businesses that have unearthed what I call quick wins, you know, quick triumphs by placing boundaries around their digital projects so that they can function autonomously and uninhibited by traditional processes. They'll just put them in a corner somewhere and it's like, off you guys go. However, the moment the digital project demonstrates its usefulness, you know, shouldn't subsequent tasks follow suit? Persevering uh, or preserving the, 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 the project's autonomy restricts its influence on other businesses. Uh, furthermore, an individualized gig, as I call it, is not hard for you know, the traditional business to disregard. So one assertive possibility is to absorb the traditional businesses into the new digital unit, spreading the transformation business-wide, and then compelling the rest of the company to abandon its archaic approaches. This is what I call the inverse acquisition. Uh, this tactic is hard work. It comprises the comprehensive moving and resettlement of technology manifestos and company structures and processes and ultimately consumers from the traditional business to the new model, right? Cautious ranking and face methodology that will guarantee that the company doesn't collapse into the disorder during the changeover. So I'll give you an example. You know, this is a British retail store. Uh, I can name this guy. It's a public company, John Lewis. Uh, It was acquired uh, a very long time ago by buy.co.uk in 2001. And it inherited vital technology and talent that it used to to quickly erect its own e-commerce business in the year shortly after. Um, John Lewis commenced a gigantic undertaking a few years later to reconstruct its web and e-commerce framework which uh, involved assimilating, you know, over 30 prevailing tech systems. And then they had this e-commerce site, which land, which, 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 which launched like in 2013. And, uh, and it's connected with the retailer soup to nut supply chain and the delivery conduits and the physical stores. Here's the thing. The 
10 year long dedicated effort increase its online sales by close to 30%. So inverse acquisition, uh, that works. The third is what I call the offshoot. Now, there are five of them. I'm, I'm trying to be as, as quick as possible to explain these digital uh, mindsets uh, and the companies, depending on you know what kind of companies they are, they can sort of decide. The offshoot is, you know, it's it's unrealistic to to always expect to be absorbing a traditional business into a new digital operation, especially if the digital business is not yet sufficiently developed to absorb a larger unit, or if the, you know it focuses on too much dissimilar fragment of the value chain. So you know, in these cases what the businesses can do is they they can discover that an optimal way to grow those ventures is to segment the separate fragments into distinct businesses that can then develop outside the principal trade or business there's an, an example here as well it's uh it's bbva compass which is a spanish bank um it's safe to talk about non-U.S. companies um, in this context. Uh, they had a software development division called GlobalNet, um, uh, you know, for over a decade. And they used that to fuel their technology initiatives. A couple of years back, GlobalNet, this little software development division, transformed into Beva, B-E-E-V-A, which is an offshoot for creating and marketing business web services. Now, although Beva powered the base technology for BBVA, you know, the Spanish bank's transition into digital banking, the bank's executives realized the software division's innate potential. So as an independent services business, Biva helps other banks do what BBVA has done using Biva's groundbreaking cloud technology platform. So in this instance, a structural swivel or inverse acquisition we just talked about may not have worked. Why? Because the bank was ultimately a financial services company right. and its software division, Viva, was a web services unit with functionality that was markedly different from the bank's core business. So that's what I call the, the offshoot. Okay. And so, finally... I don't want to interrupt, but there's we actually have a, have a question from Twitter. And okay. it's... It, this one's it's more prosaic, but everybody's asking this question, which right. is this is from Arsalan Khan, and he's wondering where does the CIO fit into all of this? Because we think about yeah. we think about digital transformation as involving technology, but as you're clearly demonstrating, the technology is it's a piece, but it's not the biggest piece. So so maybe address the technology aspect, and but where does the CIO fit? Well, the CIO fits in the middle of all of this, right? But the CIO is also responsible for a lot of the traditional legacy systems and technologies um, and to be able to maintain um, the current sort of modus operandi and order of business within the company. A lot of these companies could be, a lot of companies like Fortune 500 and other companies or larger companies are actually going through, uh, are, are going through transformation whilst maintaining their KPIs and their stock price and, and, and making sure because the street is very unforgiving. So if you actually start to slip, your stock price is really going to tank. So the CIO's job is to make sure that both sides of the equation are well-balanced. 
Um, so the CIO sits right in the middle of this because obviously technology is paramount and it's sort of at the center of this. But at the same time, it's also about thinking strategically um, outside of sort of the, the confines of the CIO's office or the CMO's office or even the CEO's office. This is about, that's why, you know, oftentimes you have digital officers which are thinking very strategically about not necessarily technology or information or data, but they're thinking, well, how the hell do I just completely change the way that we reach consumers, you know, and, and change the way that the company is structured so that there is a coherent transformative strategy that the customer um, sees and interacts with the company in a, in a coherent and concise manner. So, so CIO is one aspect of everything, but I, I think that, you know, this is a kind of, this is a kind of process transformation on digital that requires um, skills from a variety of different parts of the organization, operations, information, data, executive strategy, as well as, of course, marketing. So. so so, a key part of this, then, is the fact that the digital transformation is not just about marketing. We tend to think, or very, very often people talk about digital transformation as essentially a marketing activity, but it's not at all. It doesn't have to be. I mean, it's, Maybe I it's wouldn't say it's it. not at all. I mean, obviously, digital sits within marketing oftentimes, but... Um, you know, digital is way beyond marketing. It's not just about likes and social media. You know, there's an old Beatles song, uh, money can't buy you love. You know, I would like to add to that. It don't even buy you a like. All right. And, and that's what, you know, that's what, that's what marketing has become. In I love terms that. Of, I love that, by the way, digital money. Yeah, money don't buy you love, you know, don't even buy you a like. That's by the way, it doesn't. I mean, it's not incorrect grammar. I'm just... Uh, but going it, with the but what song. about Look, but what about Facebook? You know, you can you can you can buy likes on Facebook. I'll give you <laughs> I'll give you an example. Look, customers are not what they used to be, right? The internet has given them wings and you know given us the power to express ourselves. Marketing is not what it you know digital. Is, long gone are the days of look. We we run one of the largest. You know, we're one of the largest publishers in technology and health and men's lifestyle. Advertising and licensing are huge, huge aspects of our business, right? Um, We stay away from gimmicks, from clever phrasing and seduction, right? The well of false enchantment has run dry. So, So consumers are staring down now at attempts at persuasion and, you know, flashy advertising because they expect authenticity, from corporations and individuals alike, right? The shift in consumer expectation, it comes on the back of what? It comes on the back of digital revolution, right? And unilateral skepticism towards companies and their products. So as consumer psychology changes, then digital and marketing is entering a new era where human needs, values, and connections are defining success and failure, right? So it's a call to action to marketers and advertising executives and, you know, departments who typically uh, have had digital functions to think about how do they change their perspective towards consumers? You know, they can, companies cannot see 
consumers as gullible money bags or as conquests, right? They, they have to see consumers as community members, as tribes people, as human beings who crave trust, predictability. You see, you, you see the theme here? Well, we're talking about technology and digital, but really how, what, where I'm getting at is the ability. I call it the relationship era. Oh, it's this is great. Trust. Yeah, this is, yeah. this is, yeah. I, I, yeah. This, is, this is, that's, you know, when, when I started, I, I must have spoken to over a hundred companies, you know, across the board, writing this book. And it fundamentally came down to consumers, you know, crave trust, predictability, transparency, respect. And so this is the, Bathos of the relationship era. In this era, the company's corporate value, when you, when it comes to digital, why do you want to transform digitally, right? Your corporate value must resonate at every level that infrastructure and, and, and you know it has to emanate outward through the company's employees, the customers, the suppliers, the stakeholders, you know, neighbors, and you know your relationship towards Earth. So. Merely projecting an image is akin to falsity. The companies have to genuinely and steadfastly practice what they preach. So the ascendant paradigm in marketing and digital is, is, is completely natural. It's almost expected. You know, when you look at the history of marketing, you know, it becomes painfully clear why this new era with digital came about. Right. And, and there's lots of Uber trends in terms of how marketing has shifted and why digital doesn't necessarily have to just fit within marketing, but also spread into operations and supply chain and, uh, you know, obviously in technology itself. So there's a reason for that. The first reason is that the unsustainability of mass media and advertising, both economically and socially, look, the cost of advertising continues to increase. Why? You know, technology allows marketers to reach highly targeted groups of people, and yet consumers are conspicuously opposed to advertisements. Look at the ad blocking, right? They're perceived as an encumbrance, and in some cases, frankly, they're perceived invasive. So the second thing is that the Internet has dissipated the curtain of shadows, that once hid corporate activity. No longer are corporations, you know, impregnable fortresses. What remains of corporations is transparent. And it must be if companies are to win the confidence of their customer bases. You know, these are the underlying psychology and traits that digital has to harness. Then you have the rise of social media channels, right? These are news outlets, People are sharing current events. Look at our president-elect. I mean, you know, the guy's tweeting all the time. So people are sharing current events as they happen as opposed to retrospectively. Daily events are live conversations. And finally, the Uber trend is about the overturn of the morality of consumerism. What do I mean by that? Well, the public cares not only about the cost and quality of its products and services. Look at the millenniums. I mean, you know, People also, they care about the values and the conduct of the providers, right? Trust, reliability, ethics often supersede quality and affordability. And so you have to take all of these things into account when you devise and place your digital department. Should we sit in the marketing? Should we sit, you know, under 
uh, operations or should we think strategically so that the company has a profoundly you know, altered the, the status quo, the strategy and the, and the very sociology of marketing. So the question, the question really before us and everybody out there is this, what can we do? Uh, what can we do to adapt while persevering our bottom line? Right. And so you got to figure out, you know, some kind of a middle way. And, and, and that's really, that's really where, where digital comes in and where it really needs to be sitting. You got to think about it as a consumer era, you know, an era where it's relationships and it's change and values. And how do you build that story, you know, um, um, to do things. And, and, and that's what it's all about. I mean, it's, uh, let me give you an example. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Okay. I, I did this last week. Type this um, in your Google. Type, I love Apple, all right, into your search bar. And you're going to, you don't have to do it right now, but if you type, I love Apple in your search bar, you're going to get like, I don't know, 400 million hits in about 42 seconds, right? Type, uh, you know, I love Starbucks uh, in your search bar. You're going to get like 36, 37 million hits, right? So if you're, you know, order a magnitude less. And that's in about just under a minute. So where am I going with this? Some companies spend billions of dollars every year, right? They're getting the attention of their customers and they don't boast nearly as many hits, likes, or love. Companies like Exxon, right? It's Rex Tillerson is in the news. Citibank, Dow Chemical. I mean, so what's the key? You do the, you do the same thing with these companies and it'll, it'll, it'll tell you exactly what I told you, which is money don't buy you love. It don't even buy you like. So type I love Citibank. And you'll say, I'm not, it's not a pot shot at any of these companies. How about I love Comcast? It's the point I'm trying to make. You're going to get like 12 million hits in 30 seconds. You know, a lot of these companies, they don't fare any better. Where am I going with this? And they're spending over $1 billion or $2 billion so, in the case of Exxon. So what's the key? So how, do we, so, so how does a company that is in business that has operations that maybe has had an adversarial relationship with consumers gullible. I mean, you use the term gullible money bags. Um, (laughs) How can a company, a traditional company, traditional mindset make this change? There's three realities of today's market. People talk providence and transparency. All right. If you're in marketing and you don't understand this, then this is something that, you know, uh, this is the digital speak. But in terms of marketing, the billions of people online, right? Millions of them are talking about brands, experiences, and the posting reviews and the reading consumer feedback. So when your customers like your brand, trust me, you know, they will express affection for it, right? People will care about you, just how it works. Um, look at the, you know, the app and fan club or look at the beehives after Beyonce's whole marketing empire, right? The second is Providence. You know, these are relationships. Um, and what people say about you online does in fact dictate your success, right? You might not want to accept it, but that doesn't make it untrue. The third is transparency. This is both an edict and an admonishment, you know, be transparent and should be, you know, what, what happens in the boardroom is no longer a secret and any discussions can, can be had and they probably find their way into a public forum. So it's, it's not business as usual, or I would rather call it as business unusual. So 
What can companies do is understand these things. The fact that people talk, the fact that there's, you know, there's relationships that you might not want to accept, but there's providence, the fact that this transparency matters. And so, you know, you have to, you have to figure out digital strategies that, that take these into account and stitch them together in a way that can really establish that permanent relationship the company needs to build with its customers, but, but, you know, especially the ones that are detached from it. You got to lubricate the but, relationship. But how? What? What are the what? I because the reason I ask is because yeah. what you're saying just is so much in tune with what is taking place in the market. Yeah. But companies very often they they struggle with this. They they. Yeah. They want yeah. to do it. They desperate. They'll spend millions and millions of dollars trying to do this, trying to buy right. these these likes and this relationship, right. and it right. doesn't work. And how? So how do you do it? Many ways. Look, relationships are built on social media nowadays, right? I mean, always be connected. It's a boon. It's a curse, and consumers have perpetual access. And so, um, there's no relationship you can take for granted. So, so, so. Consumers are connected to their families, their friends, co-workers, everywhere else. And so what companies need to do is understand how social media works, you know, especially Facebook, actually, and, and, and use them in a way that can establish these relationships with these customers, understand the observations, the ideas, their concerns, hopes, their dreams, their fears, and their opportunities and their failures, and, and connect with them in a way that can establish a genuine relationship. You know, a consumer complains about a product or a company somewhere on the internet, there are bots available now where you can actually go and harness that conversation and engage with that customer. Companies don't do that. And if you were to do that and just, you know, channel that customer's complaint and address it, you might have the customer for a very long time. I wouldn't say for life, but for a very long time. And so, you know, you don't have to spend billions of dollars in marketing in order to do that. So, so, so you have to establish trust and it's important that you have to humanize the institution. Digital is about humanizing your institution is about humanizing the corporation, right? Uh, making it predictable, reliable, you, you know, honest, loyal respect and sharing values and empathy. That's what this is all about. It's about establishing credibility. You know, you're asking me, well, how do you establish credibility? How do you establish congruency and care? Well, you know, these are not very hard things to do. It's just that you need to use social media channels and you need to use technology to figure out and marketing to figure out how to create the credibility, you know, the presumption of reliability and dependence must take primacy, you know, uh, and care, which is about caring for your customers, you know, engaging with your customers, their lives matter. It's about constructing a business around their needs and addressing them happily, you know, and then congruency, which is, which is, which is, which is, which is consumers are consistently reading into the actions of corporations. You know, you, you, you're, 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 you're trying to, trying to, you know, define true motivations, the beliefs, values, and purposes. You know, that's, that's what this is about. So, how do you create this? You, you use technologies and social media and the tools that are available, apps and whatnot, in order to create a brand which is relationship-driven and which is all-encompassing. That is the only way that Fortune 500 companies and even smaller companies, which are trying to disrupt them, 
can be around. Okay. Because, you know, look, Satya Nadella, who was there, uh, you know, the president-elect on Wednesday, he wrote a blog on, on LinkedIn uh, a couple of months ago that basically said that, you know, if you lose 30% of your customers, you're done. And 50% of the Fortune 500 companies are done, you know, because they didn't see it coming. You know, you had an in, a new kid on the block that just came and swept the entire industry away. This is happening more and more. You know, back in the day, we had the industrial revolution, which was 20 years, 25 years, and you had the textile revolution. Now you have a digital revolution, which is five to seven years. So it's evolving, it's changing, it's fast, it's in your face. People are there, they're always connected. How do you actually do it? Well, you get in front of them and you basically, you're transparent. And, you know, you, you got to live your life in front of your consumer and you, you can't have the shadow of this, this veil at the back. And you got to establish this relationship. And once, they, once you have that circle of trust, it's about establishing that. Once you have that circle of trust, that is what digital is about. It's, so, it's about establishing the circle of trust. And, you know, money will flow. Everything else flows. And so that's how, that's how you got to look at it. So, so it begins with the strong intention to do the yes. right thing. But yes. we, ha- well, we, have, we have only about five minutes left. And there's something else that I wanted to... This, we could, this conversation is very important. We could go on for another hour. But we've got just a few minutes left. And there's sure. one other thing that I wanted to talk with you about, which is... And you'll have to explain this. You are, you are in the star of one of the most highly viewed music videos of all time. It's gotten millions and millions and millions of views from a concert you recorded at Carnegie Hall. So very briefly, tell us about that. And what are there leadership lessons that can be learned from the musical experience? Well, uh, I'm going to answer this question using the form of music that I have personally known. And this is Indian classical, the music of North India, classical music of North India. It's also called Hindustani music. By the way, this is not the, you've been very kind, Michael. This is not the most watched video of all time. In the genre of world music, this is among the most watched. It's done about two and a half million views over the course of the last eight months. So I, I happen to love world music and I love Indian music. So, so that's, okay. that's my frame of reference and millions of views for that kind of music is pretty, pretty. Darn yeah. I mean, normally, normally the template is a few thousand, if at all over the course of years. So look, let me, let me start uh, by saying what Indian classical music is and how my, uh, and then I'll, I'll give you my my sense of leadership and management. And, okay, we've only it, got we've only got about three minutes. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm going to be very very quick. Uh, leadership is about the ability to change the central core from which an organization functions. Right, efficient leaders they redeploy the makeup of shared focus. So you're altering personal space where individuals and organizations center on the ecosystem and themselves. So. There are three things the leadership comprises, feeling, enthusing, and inventing, right? You're exposing oneself to the outer ecosystem, you're embracing the world within, and then you're nurturing and developing potential into existence. So, you know what's interesting when I performed at Carnegie Hall is the, the, it's about a shared system of performance that in many ways can be equated with building and playing a musical instrument leadership. Three things need to happen for a musical instrument to create its best music. The frame of consonance, the motivation of the music, and lastly, you got to play with the macro voice. So 
When I gave my first concert at Carnegie Hall, I did two there, uh, solo concerts. Uh, the first one in 2007, I felt the hall kicked me out. For I was young and I tried to perform as I always did. You know, I was just singing. But then I came to realize that at Carnegie, you actually have to use your micro, not your micro vocals. You got to use your macro voice, which is the small voice of the instrument that's inside your vocal cords. The macro, and this is this is what I'm. This is my point. The macro voice is the whole Carnegie Hall that surrounds you. The hall is entirely built according to musical principles. So you're playing the macro voice requires you to listen and to play from another place, which is to think about your audience. In other words, your customers, you, you got to move your listening and your playing from within to beyond yourself, right? And that is when the music, in other words, the leadership, it's, it's not about inward. It's not about leadership. It's not command and control. It's about thinking about your audience. You know, it's thinking about how do I move from micro to macro and how do I form this frame of consonants and play from a macro voice? So when this occurs in an organization, and Ben Zander, actually, the Boston Symphony has, has, has done some phenomenal speeches on this uh, and discussions. But when this occurs in an organization or society, concrete changes can be witnessed. There's a decentralization of societal space. There's a reduction in societal time down to be motionless. And there's a breaking down of the precincts of ego. Right. The visible results of this practice include an amplified understanding of self, of vigor, of duty, of continuing authenticity that can be recruited and galvanized in the future. And of course, very long, deep, deep changes, long-term changes. So that's the core of leadership. And so, you know, when I do music, when I perform, that's how I'm thinking about it from, from the point of view of on stage and how do I actually recruit the audience in order to participate with me in a way that it becomes a macro, you know, the frame of consonants and, and that's music and leadership. We've had guests on CXO Talk who have spoken about the concept of servant leadership, and it sounds very harmonious with what you just described. Yes. Thank you. And with that, I'm afraid this in very interesting, engaging conversation, it's time for this episode, episode number 208 of CXO Talk to draw to a close. We've been speaking with Anurag Harsh, who is Senior Vice President and Founding Executive at Ziff Davis. Anurag, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I hope you'll come back and we'll, we'll, we'll have to continue this conversation another time. Absolutely. Everybody, thank you for watching. Next week, we have a show, and we have a show the last Friday in December as well, because CXO Talk never rests. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for watching. Thanks for your support, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Bye-bye.